0: Let's Review, a podcast about current events, culture, politics, and what's on our minds. I'm Jen White. And I'm Kim Springer. In the wake of recent events in Ferguson, Cleveland, New York, Baltimore,
1: Madison, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Texas,
0: we notice similarities in how language is used.
1: So we think what's happening is a war of words. So the media, activists, different organizations, all your Facebook friends, All those people have a stake in how these issues are framed. So we want to make sense of the hidden structures in this
0: language. So here to help us dig in is Al Young, a sociologist at the University of Michigan. So Al, from a sociological perspective, why is language such a powerful tool? Why does it matter?
2: Language matters because that delivers to us images of reality. The terms we use, the concepts we use, really create for us a sense of what's going on. And then our value judgments come into play. What's good or bad? What's positive, negative? Beautiful, less than beautiful? So language is critical.
1: So we came up with a list of words and phrases that keep appearing when we talk about race and current events. And we'd like to get your take
0: on when, how, and why they're used. And by whom. Yes. Okay. So the first set of words is riots versus uprisings. Oh. so the light stuff. Easy stuff. Indeed, indeed, <laughs> welcome.
2: <laughs> so the simple way to put it is an uprising is that which unfolds by people we believe in and we support. And a riot unfolds when people we're disturbed by are doing the very same things. And so I say that slightly tongue in cheek. But I think, again, a, a perfect example of how language matters. We use uprising when we're supportive, when we understand, when we're empathetic. And we say there are people that are justified in responding the way that they respond. We say riot when they're misbehaved, Hmm. when they're not civil, and when we have a problem with what they're doing. Even if we play a role in affecting what's led them to take the actions they've taken. Mm -hmm. And then does that
0: different terminology also drive the likely response?
2: Indeed, indeed. We sanction people who riot. We support encourage and in some ways try to appease those that engage in uprisings. Sometimes we celebrate them.
1: So what about this next one, black-on-black on black crime? Who uses that and why?
2: <laughs> Lots of people use black-on-black black crime. And unfortunately, I think we often think of black-on-black black crime as the justification for having negative views or attitudes about all black people. Right? It becomes a way of saying those folks can't get along with each other. Why in the world must the rest of us figure out how to get along with them? But it is the case, as it is for many racial and ethnic groups, that crime that unfolds tends to occur amongst people that are next to each other, close to each other, know each other. And so black-on-black crime, in in its manifestation, is not a whole lot different than white-on-white crime or Latino-on-Latino crime.
0: But you don't see those terms
2: used. Right. Again, because the image of black-on-black crime indicts all black people. It's a way of conveying that those folks aren't responding properly, and hence we may not have to maintain an obligation to respond to them.
1: Is it also kind of a backlash term maybe to the civil rights movement and to black power? You people said you were united and so together, and now here you are killing one another.
2: And in some ways, it's, in my reading, America's unsettlement with all of the agency that unfolded, particularly in the late 1960s, when black people began to get aggressive in making demands, (laughs) momentous time in history— and hence, discussions of disorder and, and disobedience and, and the decay of cities really came out of a sense of cities being the site for what I regard as uprisings, or <laughs> some mm-hmm. would say, are riots mm-hmm. uh, in America. And, and hence led to this notion of these folks may not be able to manage themselves or engage each other in appropriate form.
0: Mm-hmm. Next term, unarmed black man or unarmed black woman hosty people say it sometimes (laughs) you did not have to point at me across the table Kimberly I
2: did because
1: we've had this conversation (laughs) this debate not not
2: said enough (laughs) indeed the great majority of black people are unarmed but that almost plays no role in the discussion of black people who faced harm and violence at the hands of the police, sometimes at the hands of other citizens. Being unarmed, unfortunately, doesn't stand in the way of other images, other terminology that's brought to these black bodies and trying to make sense of and in many ways justify the harm that's brought to them.
0: It seems to me that that use of unarmed, from a media perspective, and I'm not defending it at all, but it's a way—let me me figure out how to say this— It's a way to almost set up the listener or viewer to view them as sympathetic in a way they might not otherwise.
2: And I appreciate that effort. Indeed, one should take account of what unarmed means. But I think that gives license to a broader public to often engage in other kinds of conversation about those bodies. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not armed, but they're dangerous or threatening because of what they did yesterday, two weeks ago, what they might do, by virtue of being in the space where they met violence. Mm-hmm. So I I understand, recognize the value of the term. It triggers the counter response too often. And certainly with contemporary events mm-hmm. <laughs> much yeah. too and often. And
1: I wonder too though if, you know, saying unarmed black man maybe trying to inspire a particular kind of response with the use of unarmed, but yet here's all the things the media has done around the term black man. Mm. So now you're going to try to mitigate all of those stereotypes. So Mm -hmm. that's why I find it a pet peeve.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's, I think it's a fair one. And it's, again, it's not a term that we hear preceding other types of um, uh, individuals who are subject to violence and and but it's particular mm-hmm. in that use. I'm trying to. I was trying to think when we had this conversation. I was like, Have I ever heard that term used in response to like unarmed Asian man, unarmed um, Latino, even? And I and I couldn't call one readily to mind.
1: Yeah, that's my fear that it just mm-hmm. becomes this kind of package. Well,
2: well it, it points to an effort to to defend and assert the humanity of black people, mm-hmm. and a way to make them seem mm-hmm. civil, justified, deserving of civic responses given what's happened to them is to say unarmed. Right.
1: So along those lines of a certain kind of humanity, we were wondering about it seems like with activists, they're going back and forth between calling people victims of police violence versus these posters that are reminding us about the death toll. Mm-hmm. And it almost shows people as as martyrs for the cause. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is the purpose or the sort of the efficacy between defining somebody as a victim versus making them a martyr?
2: Well, I think you know, martyr is a strong term, and I understand the politics behind this. So the effort to, to, to galvanize interest in response to, to some of these events, you know martyr does that. But I think ultimately, and, and even more tragically, the people that have suffered most recently at the hands of police violence, in some cases other, other forms of violence, weren't initially acting in ways to put their bodies on the line. Right? So mm-hmm. I, I, I regard a martyr. In, in many ways, is someone that conscientiously acts with the understanding that right. death or, or physical harm may come before them. Okay. These were folks living everyday lives. Right. <laughs> right. We no I didn't go out to be Going a to church. Right, right. <laughs> right. Not at all prepared for death or, 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 or violence. You know, b- brought to their bodies, mm. and so I, I fully support the notion of victim in that sense. And and again, the fight to assert and defend that the humanity of, of of black people, particularly around the police, to to, to argue that one's a victim, you know, conjures up for those that don't want to accept that mm. all kinds of defensive responses. Mm.
0: Do you think martyrdom also, in some ways, it's like you've got to find you've got to find the right person, right? Yeah. And so yeah. when you create martyrs. If other individuals don't neatly fit under a certain umbrella, then we kind of have to like put them right. behind. It's like, oh, well, you don't fit under the martyr umbrella. We've got to put you to the side a little bit rather than addressing some of the larger issues that are at stake and, 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 and answering the question of why the umbrella has to be so big in the first place.
2: I mean, it's a consequence of the need to, to feel like one has to erase or deny imperfect black humanity to get social justice. And I understand that situation. I'm disappointed by it. I think it's almost futile, but, but important to maintain that I haven't met a perfect person yet, mm-hmm. you know, much less people that, that have faced the violence. They face the hands of police, some, some other individuals. But I get how in this compelling moment of trying to indict, deny black humanity, that there's this call to find the perfect person um, the, the pure person, right?
0: What is so chilling about what you just said to me, though, is that it echoes back <laughs> to the civil rights movement and the strategic use of the right people in those cases. Rosa Parks, everyone thinks, oh, it was just this thing that happened. But they were strategic in their choice of her because she was the right kind of person. And here we are again. It It's... It's, it's, it, it, there's an echo there. Are you concerned that we've not learned from that? And no, I'm concerned that it's still necessary. Or, the, or that's what I'm hearing you say.
2: And, 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 and there's some really deep effects of the civil rights movement that factor in everything we've said about black humanity and, 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 and a quest for justice. I think aside from Rosa Parks, just the very image of Martin Luther King, nonviolent engagement, dismisses in the public any possibility for black people to respond aggressively, assertively, and seem justified. So the image that's there is the nonviolent. That's the martyr, right? An individual who died going to his death, promoting—and I respect the principles. I understand the principles. But I'm disappointed by black people being held accountable to that image. And anything other than that allows them to be dismissed as citizens. When, in fact, we wage war all the time as an American— Population mm-hmm. against injustice right, in very literal ways, but Black Americans waging war in the United States around injustice gets indicted because of images of the martyr Martin Luther King and, and nonviolence, or the patience of Rosa Parks to not try to knock over a bus or take over a bus, but just sit down comfortably on a bus.
0: Hmm.
1: It's a really weird facile conversation stopper, though. To be like, "Well, they're not like MLK." Well, who
0: could be like?
2: Precisely. Okay. <laughs> precisely. <laughs> you have to be superhuman <laughs> right. to get respect as <laughs> a human being. Yeah. And,
0: and, but, and but and yet and yet, his is the largest specter in these conversations, mm-hmm. and and in a way, it, yeah, it'll, that's a quick way to shut down, to shut it down. And I and I see it happen over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as we know, there was a very tragic event in Charleston, South Carolina, mm-hmm. where nine people were murdered. And as soon as the details around this began to emerge, pretty quickly, the media and federal law enforcement referred to it as a hate crime. And just as quickly, I saw criticism emerge saying, why are we calling this a hate crime? It was a terrorist attack. So why and to whom does it make a difference what this is
2: called? It makes a difference. I believe it should make a difference to everyone but it certainly makes a difference in in our understanding of race and the significance of race today because this was a young man who at any other point in time in his life would have been seen as a child, as a child perhaps preparing for a positive future, who in this developmental stage spent a good deal of his time thinking about how much he hated black people and deliberately and consciously intended to harm black people. And so I think the, the effort to dismiss race from this moment it's almost embarrassing because it's so present it was a part of what went on. This, this is not someone who quite simply went off on a, on a given day. Right. The accounts provided by his friends and people who know him knew that there was something problematic about him for a very long time.
0: So do you feel like this incident fits under either term or both?
2: It's terroristic in the sense that it's an act of all-out assault on black people. And in that sense, for me, that's what terrorism is. Right? It's an aggressive, overly hostile effort to affect people, right? a shock movement. And that's, quite frankly, what he did in the deliberate planning, in the waiting, in the church, right? in almost this seductive style of, of being a part of a religious community for a while. That, to me, was a terrorist act. But I don't think in how we discuss this as a terrorist act, we can divorce all of the other conceptual tools around race from that. And that's what's important for me. So it's terrorism around race. Hmm.
1: But was there also uh, a matter of, depending on what the federal government called it, that's who was going to be called in and mobilized. So if they had called it a terrorist act, would Homeland Security have had to be involved with it? And it seems like then there's this assumption, by not using it, that, that black people or brown people cannot be subject to
0: terrorism.
2: Right, right, right. Precisely, so in part, the displacement of race mm-hmm. okay. plays into that.
0: That this this whole conversation and the way we've had to sort of break break all of these different ideas apart brings us to a larger question, I think, about the language around race and racism mm-hmm. in in the country. So, if we can't get on the
1: same page about the language that we use. How are we supposed to have a meaningful conversation about race and racism?
2: I think the great challenge is that various parties have got to recognize what they're not prepared to engage or not prepared to, to assess about themselves Part of that conversation. you know, Many years ago, James Baldwin said, there's not a black problem in America, there's a white problem. And we can't talk about the so-called black problem without talking about the white problem. And I think that fundamentally exists today. So what happened in South Carolina, what happened in other moments— aren't simply problems for black people. They are to accept that black people got hurt. Mm -hmm. But the fact that there's space for people to act in the ways that they did and feel secure and in some ways righteous in doing so means there's a larger national problem. And that means we're all implicated. So if we begin the conversation from the point of view of let's discuss the black problem, we've missed all kinds of capacity to realize what's going on and realize our role in it. Now, there's great work to do to get others to think differently. And if I had the answer, I'd be out it now <laughs> in the streets. That's <laughs> what talking right. to you today. Right. But that's the great challenge, is, is for people to think differently about these conversations. Uh, and unfortunately, even this moment, I, I think, is too often talked about as that problem for some black people in South Carolina.
0: Well, it's also interesting to me that around conversations of, of race and racism, black people aren't using the same language. You know, President Obama was criticized for using the word thug in response to what broke out in Baltimore, call you if you want to call them riots or uprisings. Um, we're not on the same page about that language. So it can't <laughs> how high can our expectations really be?
2: Well, I think we've got to realize the stakes of the game. So at some level, the president's got to be strategic. I think any conscientious person realizes that what he said following the George Zimmerman moment, triggered what you can and cannot say as a public official around presumed racial moments. So mentioning that a son of his could have been mm-hmm. a victim i am mm-hmm. disfavor. Mm-hmm. Making an obvious fact, i am mm-hmm. disfavor. Right. So I think as a politician, it doesn't mean that there aren't other ways he could have expressed himself, there aren't other terms he could have used. But I'm fully aware that depending on where particular black people are in the public and depending on what roles they have, they've got access to some concepts and there's some concept that will get them in trouble or turn America away from realizing what's at stake. So on the one hand, that's a part of, of what happens in public officials using terms. The other issue, I think, is a fair amount of insecurity or discomfort for black folks in finding language that allows us to talk about our humanity. Backs are up against the wall because the image of the unarmed black male services because the public thinks of black men is threatening as up to criminal activity, if not fully engaged in it. And so this fight to figure out how we can talk about black humanity that captures the imperfect black person in the same way that every person's imperfect is a great challenge, and so we're limited. Almost every term that we can use to engage a public conversation has some consequence that gets in the way of trying to engage that public conversation.
1: And institutional consequences, too, because I'm just thinking the whole idea of how we've been running our war on drugs and prisons rests on these imperfect black and brown bodies. So there's
0: an investment there.
2: Indeed. And a particular vision of what we should do with these imperfect black bodies. Okay. Control, contain, surveil. K-
0: Kimberly, don't, don't, don't come across the table at me. <laughs> <laughs> at your
1: imperfect black body? No, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Is this further complicated when we have people like Rachel Dolezal who come onto the scene? I yeah. she gonna, oh, <laughs> don't do talk about it. I know she's been she's yeah. been refusing and but I mean I, I I think that's a fair question.
2: And I'm still trying to make sense of of that moment. I, I'm not wholly surprised by it. I recognize and, and moments in my past have encountered a number of people that are intrigued by black people. And want membership in the club, so to speak. Now, what she did is far beyond. <laughs> that goes beyond <laughs> intrigue. Membership and president <laughs> of said club. <laughs> 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 but there's a unique sort of way in which blackness is celebrated, validated. And you know, we, we see this in lesser forms. I mean, the consumption of, of black popular culture, which happened all throughout American history. Right? Appreciation for black performance. You know, this is a very different moment but not totally out of step with some level of intrigue, fascination, infatuation with blackness. And I'm still trying to figure out what you do around this. I mean, at some level, she presumably did her job well and people appreciated the work that she did. But the feeling that you had to quite literally be black mm-hmm. <laughs> to get on with mm-hmm. this work, it's disturbing. I mean, it, it in some sense conveys to the broader public that being of service to black people requires you to be black. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a dangerous message to send to non-blacks. She could very well have been the whitest person in America serving the NAACP in Washington Mm -hmm. and doing the good work that that she presumably was doing. And so I'm concerned about what that, you know, her her effort to to claim blackness Mm -hmm. might mean. Um, That's the immediate thinking that's going on for me. I'm I'm sure in time to come there'll be other Thoughts. But, well, uh, well, if
0: you haven't figured it out, then I don't feel bad yet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel, I don't feel I'm bad I'm still not going
1: to talk about it. Kimberly's <laughs> refusing. She said, I will
0: not discuss it. I will not discuss it. So in, in approaching this conversation about race and racism, in your experience, where, where does it have to start? I mean, it, who really has control of this conversation or, or who has to be in, in front of it?
2: Well, I, I would say, first of all, we're talking about multiple conversations happening at different levels. So in, in some ways, we do disservice to the complexity by saying a conversation. It's, mm-hmm. it's got to be many. And it's got to happen in different ways. In government, it's got to unfold in ways in which relying upon either claims of people being thugs or people being victims is not enough, right? More terminology has got to be brought into those conversations. In schools, a space for talking about people that recognizes difference, that celebrates difference, that understands that there is more to an American than some kind of stereotypical depiction of a white middle-class individual or more to be valued about about an American than that. And so, you know, for young people in schools, I I think there's certainly over decades an advance in the conversation, not as much of an advance as necessary. In government, there's got to be just courageous action to, 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 to talk, right? And to discuss what it means to talk. So, I would have loved, for instance, for President Obama to have had moments to reclaim his use of the term thug and talk about what kind of effect that had on some people, his awareness that their reading of his term or of his use of the term had political and social implications, that some of those readings didn't have anything to do with what he was trying to say, some might have. And so, so even in the context of, of government and national leadership, some critical reflection about how we talk about race—not just trying to talk about it, but how we talk about it and commenting on the effects of that conversation needs to happen, and in other sp- places.
0: What, what about spaces. at the community level, especially considering that we are still largely a segregated country, mm-hmm.
2: which which means a very different kind of conversation at the community level, because we're not talking in those spaces about an awful lot of moments for for discussion across racial lines, right? So. It, it means, for instance, in, in black communities, some deep consideration of the defensiveness that goes on around the terminology that's used, you know, an opportunity for us to take seriously the fact that we feel threatened and in some ways hampered by the limited terminology that exists to, to, to try to surface black humanity and try to wrestle with that and think about what that means, and, and then try to call other audiences to task for these conversations, or about these conversations, about these, these terms. I, I don't think that's a simple um, process by any means, but a necessary one. And I think black folks have a lot to say to each other about how we talk about each other that would be helpful for us, even if it doesn't penetrate the, the, the larger national conversation.
0: Have you seen or had an experience or been to a place where you saw that happening and said, yeah, this, 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 is, what it, this is what it should look like?
2: I've had a couple of moments. I mean, the last one was, but unfortunately, a few years ago. Which, like I wish I could say it was last week or last month. But I was in a black church in Brooklyn where a number of writers who were discussing the, the, the fate of black men were gathered in a church. And I was at this gathering. I knew some of the organizers. And unlike almost everybody else in this gathering—I'm I'm from New York City originally, but really been living in Ann Arbor now for, for almost 20 years—was the outsider in the conversation— and I said to people, you know, we sort of went through the litany of concerns, well, black men and absentee fatherhood and black men and lack of education. And, you know, some folks said, but well, we have some positive brothers here. And the one comment I made, true scholar, I spent a lot of time listening to how people right, talking to each right. other. But I said, you know, there's some virtue in having this space to talk to each other. I said in many parts of the country, particularly for black professionals, there's so few of them that there's the fight to have a space where you can talk freely to other black people and just recognize that whatever complaints or concerns you're raising here, you've got the space to do so freely and openly. And that you yeah. shouldn't be discounted. And you know, I think some folks resonated with that, others still wanted to kind of say what they wanted to say, but I, I felt it was important to, to, to recognize that there are some literal structural arrangements where black folks can talk to each other. And in the end, there was a healthy conversation where a father and a son we are actually talking about the misreadings they had of each other. Mm-hmm. So each asked the other, you know, to, to, to define me in your eyes. And then each explained how they saw themselves. That was slightly different than the definition the other gave. And it was a beautiful moment of a father and son, wow. kind of really courageously sharing with about 200 people yeah. in this space, you know, how they read each other. And it made us all kind of think, you know, what kind of person am I to the people in my family, to the people in my community? And so, you know, a real rich moment. And that's why even though it happened a couple of years ago, it still stays with me.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you also need those spaces then for white people?
2: I think so. And yeah, I, I as a black American I have no idea what goes on with white faces. <laughs> literally. But it, it'd be interesting to know that there are moments where there's this kind of critical self reflection, you know. What do we make of these other people in the American landscape? How do we think about them? How do we talk about them? You know, the few moments that I hear come from very fair black Americans who are assumed to be white have access to these spaces. And, you know, they report the problems of the tensions yeah. <laughs> that, that surface <laughs> when, when white folks are together talking about black people. Undercover. But, were... <laughs> right, right. but it would really be interesting to see a different kind of conversation happen in some of those spaces because, you know, that would be safe space for them. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure there's even the desire um, to, to, to engage, you know, critical self-reflection about how we think and talk about those other Americans, even if we recognize them as other Americans.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't know that we have answers, but we have a lot to think about. We have a lot to think about.
1: So thank you, Al Young, for coming in and talking with us. Again, he's a sociologist at the University of Michigan, and Let's Review's best friend.
2: (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs)
0: So this is the part of the podcast when we give you some things for your review, articles, movies, other things we've heard. And I want to recommend an article by ta Coates called Take Down the Confederate Flag Now, because it's a good example of how not just words are viewed differently by different groups, but how symbols can also mean very different things to different groups of people. And you can find that on The Atlantic. And I'm going to
1: recommend a journalist from Elle magazine. I believe her name is pronounced Shadra and her last name is LaBouvier. And she has just really been on point when it comes to all of these incidents of race and how we talk about them and what's important. So her most recent article was called Why We Have to Hashtag Say Her Name After McKinney. So again, that's Shadra LaBouvier
0: and she writes for Elle magazine. And that is your review session. Our website is medium.com slash lets dash review. There you can find show notes and our recommendations for your review. And if you want to get in touch, email us at letusreviewpodcast
1: at gmail.com. And please tell your friends to listen to us on Stitcher,
0: iTunes, and michiganradio.org. Our producer is Mark Brush, and he was also our engineer today. Our theme music is Creative Commons and courtesy of Eladla. I'm Jen White. I'm Kim Springer. Thank you for joining us for Let's Review.